I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studio one of the legends of rap and hip-hop, Cool Mo D. First in the early 1980s as a member of the Treacherous Three, and then as a solo artist beginning in the late 1980s, he notched three straight hit albums that included classic tracks like Wild Wild West, Go See the Doctor, How You Like Me Now, They Want Money, and I Go to Work. One of his key collaborators was a teenage Teddy Riley, who would go on to become the New Jack Swing King. Mo also lent his authoritative rapping skills to projects by Quincy Jones and the Isley Brothers, among others. So with that, Mo, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Very cool, very cool. Where are you coming to us from today? Atlanta. Uh-huh. Is that home now? Uh, most of my time. I spend most of my time down there. Yeah. So, um, you know, just wanted to uh, let you know, big fan. I bought all those records back in the 80s myself. And, um, you know, I don't uh, call myself a rap expert to the extent that I am in funk music, but definitely a fan and definitely bought, you know, most of those rap records during the 80s and, and 90s. And also as a DJ myself. So, I would get them through the um, resource record pool out in Los Angeles. That's where I used to spin. So, um, great to meet you. Thank you, bro. So, you're from Harlem, is that right? How did how did you get started? And uh, tell us a little bit about your your background, Mo. Uh, born in Harlem, Hospital. Maybe two or three years in the Bronx, uh, for, uh, up till about uh, six. Uh, I stayed there, moved back to Harlem, uh, September of 1969, and um, was just doing the usual Harlem young kid stuff. Uh, thought I was going to be a, a football player when I was that young. Uh, it was football and boxing for me uh, most of my childhood. That's the thing that I love more than anything. And, and um, you know, for the most part, I was a, a pretty speedy student at the time. And uh, just spent uh, most of my younger days and younger years to uh, uptown and uh, what I call Wild Wild West on the record. But about the neighborhood, I, I spent all of my shaping and developing years. In, in uptown Harlem, and uh, got the hip hop bug in 1977. The very first time I heard any similar to hip hop, um, the first thing was you know they were having little block parties and parties in the park or whatever. Um, but I didn't think much of it in terms of participating. I was definitely caught up in it. Uh, but the participation bug hit me in 1978 when I heard uh, Grandmaster Flash and he had three MCs at the time, Melly Mel, Kid Creole, and Cowboy. And um, that really, really gave me the bug. The very first MC that I ever heard of, as we call it, rapper, MC, whatever you want to call it, at the time. Uh, the very first guy I heard was a guy named Love Bug Starsky, R.I.P. That's in power. Um, yeah, and uh, like I said, I liked it, loved it, I should say, but didn't think about actually doing it until 1978. Uh, I, you know, I flew around and said, little flew wide, you know, ABC time, I'm thinking, whatever, at the very beginning. 
Flash like you know back then. Um, he was the first DJ that I considered uh, not a trickster, but he brought a flair to the DJ thing. He didn't MC at all. You know, DJ were DJ MC like Hollywood Love Buckstarsky at the time. They would uh, say yes, yes, y'all, and do things and call and call and response things to do with the crowd. Flash did none of that. He had MCs for him to do that. And Cowboy was the main guy that would do that to Flash at the time. And um, again, I just love the approach. Um, and just to hear him uh, scratch, uh, a little different because most of the DJs played records. If they played, you know, whatever was on the radio, more than normal records that you would love. Flash was the first guy I heard actually play voice beats. And uh, break beats, as they called it back then, to get down part of the record. He would uh, play those, uh, those records on time, cutting them, cutting them on time. And Kick which I consider the first true hype man, would be uh, talking about Flash when he was doing it. Excuse me, yeah. So uh, uh, that, that, that impact that they had on the crowd, watching them do what they did, absolutely. Uh, my brain all the way up. Um, uh, I would say, I would say stole the show, but definitely they had the bigger impact in the party at that night. And uh, I, I drove, I rode home on the train, and I couldn't think of anything else. And I couldn't believe that my friends were, you know, talking about, you know, going to McDonald's and get some to eat, and just talking about other stuff. And I'm like, all I wanted to talk about was what I just saw. Wow, that's powerful when, you know, you encounter something like that. What a profound effect on you. Um, what what kind of music were you into aside from rap, you know, early on? Um, soul, uh, classic soul, as they call it now, they call it classic soul. I was soul and funk. I was a uh, person fire, my all-time favorite group. Uh, I just, you know, the, the, the top four all-time groups in my life. Earth and Fire, uh, and I would say groups of artists or acts. Earth and Fire, Stevie Wonder, uh, Michael Jackson, which was part of Jackson 5, the Jacksons at the time, and then um, Prince, literally the next year. Uh, that's one of the few artists I heard from the beginning and didn't know why I was so drawn to him. It was like the music was so exceptional to me, but the artistry and the standout. Uh, energy as an artist uh, grabbed me. So 
those are my four. Well, those are quite a four. I mean, I'm right with you with all of those. So you got the bug. Um, what what were let's say the things you did as a result of that in the in the year that ensued? Um, that was the summer of '78, um, late spring, early summer, um, and then I just started to follow and just anywhere I could get. I moved around out the classroom. You know, at the time I would venture into the Bronx where it wasn't as safe to go at that time, especially if you didn't know somebody. And just go to the party, but you know, again, not only like I said, I think I was going to be a football player. I also uh, was very, very convinced in my head that I was Muhammad Ali, nobody knew about. So I literally thought that you know, naively, not even thinking about guns or weapons or getting wild or anything like that, I had absolutely no fear. Because naively, I'm thinking that people still fought with their hands, or I felt confident enough that if it got into a situation, I could talk someone into fighting with their hands and no one would ever be. So uh, I, I, I would go up to the XD garage and uh, a couple of spots in the Bronx, outdoor parks or whatever, just to see whatever Flash was and listen and watch and analyze what they were doing uh, while I was doing it. So my, my, my first year, um, I wouldn't say I was that good, but I was rhyming in 78. But uh, by a year later, by 1979, uh, I had already had a very, very solid local reputation. I wasn't as known in the Bronx yet, but I was absolutely uh, very, very known in, uh, in my little area of Harlem because they had different parts of Harlem. They had the really of town Harlem, but Downtown, they they had the Magnificent Seven. Across town, on the east side, they had uh, uh, the Crash Crew guys or whatever at Disco Four. Um, so there were groups that were coming up or whatever, but nobody actually broke through, and nobody actually had the reputation that I managed to carve out for myself at the time. Um, I also I also had a partner at the time, LA Sunshine, which was the beginnings of uh, what ultimately became the Treacherous Three. Uh, because I met Spooly G uh, a little earlier that year also. And we weren't officially a group yet, but we did start doing so many parties and stuff together that, you know, I called it, uh, let's just call it the Treacherous Three. Because uh, by 79, uh, Grandmaster Flash added a fourth MC, which is now named Scorpio, but was called Mr. Ness at the time. And I'm like, okay, so they were called the Furious Four. So the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Four MCs. So I, you know, I like the, uh, the alliteration of Furious Four. So I'm like, we have to do something similar. So let's call ourselves the Treacherous Three. That was just literally following their pattern. So in '79, the Sugar Hill Gang uh, hits big, Rapper's Delight. How did that change your perspective? on the genre and the opportunities? You know, uh, I'm also like a hip-hop almanac in the sense that I know the dates and times of most of the stuff that happened from that era. Um, Sugar Hill Gang hit uh, September of 79. So we had already had a whole summer and a whole, you know, a whole year, basically, for me, of listening, doing, going around, rhyming, and 
try to uh, carbon it or get some kind of momentum and popularity. Uh, but when they did Rappers the Light, we actually didn't think much of the record uh, when we first heard it. It was amazing to us that it exploded the way it did because it went from something we thought of novelty to literally like a worldwide smash. And without Twitter or anything of that nature, we knew the record was everywhere. I don't know how we knew it because it's very hard to undo what we know now about the internet and online and tweeting and all of that stuff. But back then, uh, you know, word of mouth was just as strong, if not stronger, in terms of whatever whatever was going on or whatever was hot occurring. So we knew that that was a smash record. But I thought it was a one-off. Truthfully, we didn't look at it like it was time to make a record or we had a chance to make a record every two weeks. I don't know, maybe K or LA and other people might have thought that. But for me, it was... Okay, that was cool, a novelty thing. It was it was the first indication that hip hop could be a little more than what we thought it was. But I still didn't think that it would be something that became the industry that that it turned into. I thought that okay, maybe somebody else will, somebody made a record. So if we go anywhere, you know, we can go anywhere. People will know about this. I th I think most people felt that way at that time. Uh, but it's interesting to hear, you know, you being right in the center of it, that you kind of thought that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And around that same time, uh, Mo, we started to hear like, you know, rap added to other songs, you know, like with Fatback Band and things like that. So how much were you keeping your eye on what was going on, you know, overall like that? Well, we were watching it overall. Um, actually, Fatback Band was before Sugar Hill Gang. So the fact that we had just, well, we never took that seriously. It was almost like uh, a folk group had, which is, by the way, the other music I was missing that uh, mentioning that uh, I was a big, big funk head also. Uh, Paul and the Funders, Delic, Fucci's uh, over there, and I was absolutely enthralled with that kind of music also. Um, but when Fatback did it, we didn't think much of it. That was like around April, March or April of that year. And then the Shamil Gang came with an actual rap record. So um, the fact that we thought that the notoriety was growing, we had a chance to be more notarized or, or, or noticed. We didn't really think again in terms of from a career, at least I didn't. And then, ironically, one of the treacherous three at the time is Spoonie G, LA Sunshine, and Kumo D. Uh, one day we're coming home after school for practice and Spoonie doesn't come and he stands us up and we don't know what the heck is going on. And Spoonie comes in and says, I have a surprise here. And he pulls up his acetone uh, plate and plays the record and says, One for the trouble, two for the days coming, yo, let's rock this. And it's him. And I'm listening and I'm kind of in awe. Like, I can't even imagine how do you make a record? More or less, you know, why are we not all right? Did you just skip practice and go make a record or whatever? Um, LA Sunshine was very, very, very irritated. I've always been um, obliviously cocky, uh, is the best way to put it. Like I said again, um, just losing, I'm sure that there are some professional fighters or even some street guys or whatever that might have been able to give me a good win for the money, but I just, I thought I was unbeatable. So the same thing was happening with the, the hip hop stuff. I started to get a reputation and I literally thought that, you know, other than 
Melly Mel, Cleo, and, and Cowboy. There's nobody anywhere near as good as I am in, in, in what we were calling hip hop or the MC thing. Uh, so when we came home to play that record, they're sitting there looking, LA's furious. And I'm like, okay, it's cool. But again, I expected nothing out of it until two weeks later, I'm hearing the record. Uh, and uh, we got uh, cars, which is the equivalent of Uber now, back then, Touch the Class and OJ. Uh, cars, which we call to pick you up and don't do whatever you have to do. But in most of those cars, the guys are actually trying to school these records. And I couldn't imagine how it was getting around that way. Because we were getting no airplay. Robin the Light was a big record because it was a regular play record and it became number one. We started to know what was happening on the charts. We had uh, TV shows like Bandstand and other things that let you know what was going on in the music industry. It's totally different from what it is now. So we knew what was happening around the world on the charts and on, on the radio stations because we had TV shows that would tell us that. So again, between Big Cloth and, and then we even had, uh, you know, the, the soul trains and things of that nature or whatever that started to give you a clue that something must be happening because you're hearing this record and you're hearing the DJs and uh, no real DJ shit, but they, they were telling us what was happening and what was going, across, going on across the world. So then we keep those conversations going. So when Spoons record came, it didn't have the same kind of impact uh, in terms of uh, radio play, but it absolutely was one of the most popular records in the neighborhood at the time because everywhere you went, uh, you know, it was being played at parties, it was being played in some of the uh, uh, cars at the time, and uh, the neighbors of hustlers, they all knew the record. So Sweetie became an instant celebrity, and ultimately, lot of go, and I never forget this, was a lot of getting calls to come and do shows and, and places that we had never heard of. So it was like, wow, unbelievable. So at that point, it was, uh, we needed to find a third member because I didn't I didn't count the school coming back, so I, I went to school the next day, and uh, there's a guy who knows how Special K comes into the equation. Uh, you know, Special K gets on the mic and he rhymes, and I'm rhyming. Well, I didn't let people know I rhymed yet, by the way. I didn't let people know that I was on the yet. Uh, but they had uh, music in our lunchroom, and Special K literally was, uh, if not the best, definitely the most popular. Uh, MC in the high school at the time. And I, I told my uh, good friend, another guy by the name of Dane O.B., uh, who would be there, who was also deep. I said, I'm going to get over there. Like, I'm, I'm going to let the secret out. Like, nobody knows I'm a father like this. And uh, as I wrote a crew, it's now called the Fashion at the time. I got on and he played a record called Headhunters that got me funded by the Headhunters.
but I literally thought that he didn't actually drive the way she did it. And I said, no, wait, wait, wait. It's almost like an after-school special movie. Like, uh, what do you think about being in a group? And he said, I don't know. I'll think about it. He didn't give me the real, you know, if you really want me, yeah, let me think about it. Let me blow it over. Which is very funny because a year later we found out that he auditioned for the fun before, literally that same week, and they told him no. And they told him no because they already had another K. And he wasn't called with no special K yet. He was called with KK. And they already had a KK rock over the funky four. So, uh, yeah, he came to practice and that day. Uh, after that, I mull it over. I get up on the block. He had practice before I am. That's what you know to me. Let me know that he really, really wanted to be down. He was playing possum for a minute. But, uh, he, 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 he started to rhyme and I sort of knew he had skills and, and the thought process went for me and for us at the time was we, we need to do something to separate ourselves from the pack. So we needed to do our routines and we got that idea again. Routine, uh, how we pass the mic and go around and round robin. Um, I would say Funky Four more than Period Five at the time was the, the group that we were most known for doing any kind of routines or any kind of passing the mic back and forth or whatever. Um, but my thing was, we just have to take it to the next level because they're still really, really simple and relatively simple. Add cat, bat, bat, mat, hat, you know. I want to do trajectory, stepping in electricity, you know, electricity, that kind of thing. I want to be a little different with, with the, the vocabulary and putting our routines together. So we started to work on it. And uh, again, we got a niche and got a little popularity. Simultaneously, Sweetie Rack, Sweetie Rack is cooling down. Uh, and then by February of 1980, uh, we are uh, officially the Treacherous Tree, Special K, Sunshine, and Kumo D. And Spoonie D is doing his own thing. Then Spoonie comes back after his record comes out because he put that record out in October, a month after Rapper's Life. And it didn't have the same kind of rate that Rapper's Life had. So by February, he's, uh, you know, back to earth, so to speak. And he says he wants to come back and be down. And, you know, Special K is nervous, like D. You know, I just, you know, let him talk. And Spoonie was like, man, it's guys in the Bronx, who cares? With the Harlem crew. Let's just get back down. Let's do our thing together. Spoonie doesn't tell us this whole time. We're arguing and negotiating. So I come up with the, the plan of Spoonie D has already got a name. We're already a group of Treacherous Three. So let's just make the group Spoonie G as a Treacherous Three. And then Spoonie said, yes, that's cool. And then uh, unfortunately said, what about the money? And I was like, wow. And that's, I said, you know what? Then let's just take it this way. You take half the money and we'll split the other half. And he says, great, that's fine. And after all of that meets, you know, with official, then he tells us that his uncle was Bobby Robinson and had a record store around the corner and we had a chance to make a record, which he didn't open with because he didn't, he wasn't sure that we were going to allow him to be back out of the group, which means he probably just made another record with his uncle by himself. We also found out by going on the road, he missed the group dynamic. So that was the way we get to the studio to make our first record, record call, the new rap language, Spoonie G and Treacherous Three. Wow. What, what was that experience like for you, actually, finally getting on wax? Uh, mine altering because there's nothing I expected to happen. Uh, even when Spoonie came back to ask to be down, I still was not focusing on making a record. 
However, by this time, uh, you're talking about uh, we make our first record in March of 1980. So in '79, we have Rap of the Light, that's 40G, which is the second record. But the next big, biggest uh, uh, underground explosion record that has a little bit of airplay is Curtis Blow with the Christmas Rap. And then you go from that into uh, Grandmaster Flash and Imperial Five, same record, Enjoy label with uh, Spoonie's Uncle. They make super rap and, and the Funky Four make rap and a rock in the house. So there are records being made. So now the, the, the shift is I do want to make a record, but I have no idea how to go about doing it. So Spoonie comes in and this is a gateway in, and it was almost like it fell out of our lap. I was more than happy to uh, put him back in the group, so to speak, have him be the quote-unquote lead or the face of the group, and make it to me and the treacherous three. But the fact that I was actually recording, I fell into that without actually looking at it, orchestrating it, or engineering it. Just literally what I call fall, fell on our lap. And uh, we did the rap language record, and then there was a B-side that wound up becoming one of the most notorious uh, a most popular break beats of all time for that time, especially uh, a record called Love Rap. And that was the B side that Spoonie did by itself. But every DJ, uh, we wanted, you know, we were never able to really keep a great accounting of the record, but every DJ of the time, every prominent DJ of the time, absolutely uh, cut and scratched and then crews are rapping off of Love Rap. So we became one of the most popular groups all damn near by default just because of the break being on the record. And we kind of skipped over it, but uh, how and when did you settle on Cool Modi as your handle? Um, that was way earlier. That was before I was actually seriously uh, taking serious as an MC. Uh, that was uh, late 1977. Like I said, I'm just playing around with it. Uh, because I've, I've seen Love Bug already, but, you know, there's nothing to really be serious about, but if you're going to call yourself something, you got to come up with something to say. I'm so-and-so, so my, my real name is Bahamas Luis. so there's the Mo and the B, easily, and I was always a get the grain kind of person, uh, back to the fighting style and, and the neighborhood. Uh, I didn't do any drugs, never drank, never smoked, never got high. And I was saying that people were doing that, people who were doing that, were doing that because of peer pressure and to try to look cool. But what's really cool is not doing it, is my thought process. So that's where the cool came from. Also, I thought the name was kind of cool. Uh, I can go all the way back to Alpha Fonzarelli on Happy Days. Uh, I like what cool felt like. And then, you know, that DJ Cool Herc, who they uh, credit as the father of hip hop. We got cool DJ AJ who was DJing for Love Book Starsky at the time when Starsky wanted to just come out front and see. Um, so, yeah, the cool thing really, really uh, made sense to me in terms of, you know, uh, the double, the hip hop thing in terms of what I saw, the funny thing in terms of television, and then I, I my uh, spiritual street thing uh, was really cool to not do drugs and not get high. So, that's why I'm cool. No cool in the gang influence, huh? Oh yeah, look cool in the game. Without question, remember I'm funk and uh, funk and R&B. So cool in the game, absolutely. Uh, uh, one of the unsung uh, architects from the beat side of hip hop. Yeah. And I think what happens is because of cool in the game, they have so many prominent hits 
from one era to the next. By the time we get to the 80s, they add JP and they're in a different zone. But the funk cooler gang from the early 70s, Jungle Book and all that stuff, we're still playing those at breakbeats at, at parties or whatever. And Jungle Jazz is one of the breakbeats that we rhymed on. So we were very, very influenced by cooling the gang from a, a breakbeat zone. Did you guys look back at all to progenitors like, um, you know, Gil Scott Heron or The Last Poets and guys like that? Uh, they were absolutely uh, influences because you couldn't avoid it. Uh, but being younger and in the know, so to speak, it, it felt like they were more political and more uh, street savvy in terms of the, the way they approached it. And I also, now me personally, I appreciate the content, but the, the style didn't lend itself to rhyming on beat. So it was, uh, it was definitely in the ethos, but I also didn't think in not the commercial matters, but it didn't seem like it was hip, so to speak, at the time. It felt like that's your father's music, that's what your father would listen to, you know, or street guys or guys that sold drugs and, you know, some of the records they weren't. They didn't get as much uh, popularity as necessary. If you were really, really into them, you probably could go down that way. But that was something that we were aware of, but it didn't really influence the way we rhymed or what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, hip-hop and rap came along right at the opportune time when disco was getting all the backlash and um, was definitely a, a fresh, more raw alternative uh, to go the other direction, you know? Absolutely. Um, so in the early 80s, uh, what, you know, transpired with the Treacherous Three, and I know that eventually, um, you know, you ended up going back to school, but what happened? Uh, I hear you something like that. I was saying, Mo, that uh, what happened from there with the Treacherous Three, because I know that, you know, you cut some records and you eventually went back to school, so... Uh, share with us what, what took place. Uh, we basically still uh, did the, um, well, actually, Swooby left us again for the second time around. Uh, I think he, at the time, ultimately wanted to be a solo artist and didn't like the group dynamic. Uh, I laugh and joke and said, I understand, you know, that my running joke has a very, very, uh, uh, arrogant sarcasm with me that, you know, if you if you know me, you know the crew, you know what it's like. So I said, I don't blame you for trying to go solo. It'd be hard to shine in the group with me, so I get it. So I used to laugh at a joke, and Ellie didn't like it at all. He thought that, you know, we were supposed to be crew, brother, family, whatever. And my perspective was, as long as there's an avenue for this to work, uh, I'm going to work at some point. And it'll be a higher level than you can imagine. So I was never, ever uh, put off by school doing it. I was really let down, like, wow, so we were rude, but okay, I get it. You gotta go out and try to get your shine. It's like, and, you know, I even do the astrological breakdown. And like, it's, it's very hard to shine, you know, Leo, I'm a Leo, and the sun is my planet, so it's very hard to shine light and fight under the sun. So I get it. So, um, when we left, I literally went around the corner uh, of the block, I should say, because we lived in on 28, 27, 28, 29th in Convent. I went around the corner to Bobby Robinson's uh, 
record store with Young Hunter with Dixie and tell them we want to make a record without Stormy. It would be over to it. He said, just come down to the studio. Like, literally. So, uh, made it like we already had a record done, but we didn't have a record plan. So, we just used some of the routines that we had from, from, uh, from the stuff that we practiced and rehearsed or whatever, and then put it together on a record, literally, on the day of recording. And we recorded at the party. And then another thing that I made up called Body Rock. Uh, and we turned over the big record, you know, there were routines already that we were doing. We did the Body Rock, did the least, and then we again became one of the solidified groups of the time. Uh, you know, because at the time you still only had, uh, in terms of prominence in hip hop, uh, Curtis Blow, Grandmaster Flash, and Furious Five, the Funky Four, um, and there are two more groups of now if the separation is becoming if you don't make a record or don't have a record or a hot record even, then the pecking order starts to shift. So now we become top five based on having a hot record. So when we did body rocking at the party, uh, I would say honestly, we didn't overtake Series Five as the number one group. But our reputation was very, very solid to the point that we were being compared to them as number one group. Um, and then, you know, other groups that were coming up that were also in the run, uh, with Cold Crush Brothers and, uh, you know, Fantastic World Bands. And you had groups that were, cut, that were still there, but because they didn't make records or didn't have big records or whatever, a lot of the notoriety didn't, uh, was not sustainable for them. Uh, so we had, you know, in hit and back to back just because we had body rocking at the party. So that's all within a year. We, in April, we put out new, new rap language and love rap. Then September, Spinning Gold over to Sugar Hill makes the second record with Monster Jam, with the sequence, and then we do our own thing at the party in Body Rock, two records. Then in April of 81, I'm sorry, March of 81, we do Heartbeat. And that becomes our signature. Uh, breakout record, and from that point on, um, we're easily the number two group in the city without question. And of course, in New York, myopia you know, New York is everything. So, if we're number one in New York, that means we're number one in the world. We have nobody else who's heard of this yet. So, that's the thought process. And uh, we kind of rode that wave until 
and said, you know, uh, we keep doing this and not making money. I'm going to wind up taking it to the streets and do something stupid. So rather than do that, I just can't do this anymore. So I didn't go solo. I tell people all the time, I wound up being solo because of the mindset of the other two members. So uh, by 1986, while at Sugar Hill, uh, I secretly recorded a record uh, at Rooftop Records. I met a, a guy who ultimately became my manager by the name of the David Mallison. I met him at Sugar Hill. He was a box boy. But every time I walked in the office, I saw him in one of the little, one of the many offices that they had. He'd be in the call, on the phone talking. I'm like, why? What are you in there whispering? What are you doing? And he was uh, trying to get records added on the radio. I guess he was playing the business on one hand, but he was saying, you know, hey, on uh, the West Coast, it's, it's 2 o'clock. Invited me to hear at five, but on the West Coast it's two o'clock, so I can still work the phone lines uh, on a whole other side of the country because of that closing time. And then uh, he asked me, well, I still trying to make records, I'm still trying to do records, so I can always whine and always that stuff, whatever. Uh, he introduced me to Teddy Riley and said, what I think you need is music. The problem with Sugar Hill now is as the music changes, changing, they're not changing with the musical times. So you just need an upgrade on the music side. So I go in, I meet Terry Riley, we do go see the doctor. Uh, and then the secondary thing was, because we didn't know anything about our contracts, because we signed in as 13 little kids in 1982, I thought we had a five-year contract. What we actually had was a three-year contract with two one-year options. And, you know, it sounded like a, a or cheesy to me at the time. I didn't understand it, but I got it what it was. So I could grasp what it was. I didn't know why they would do that and why we were thinking we were five years, but, you know, and the way the contract went, it was able to, uh, my man, not who became my manager, but they took the contract to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, well, they don't notify you in within 30 days of the deadline. Uh, you are actually free from the contract. There is no contract. So I waited 60 days instead of 30, and on August 5th, uh, I got a, a panic call from my uh, Sylvia Robinson, that's a piece also. Uh, and, you know, she's like, how did you make a record? Well, Joe Robinson had her on the phone, she was silent. And they cursed me after going to make a record, go to the doctor, and not bring it to them, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, uh, I'm one of on rooftop records, which was something that Teddy Riley, uh, another guy by the name of Greg Maris, my, my manager was there, and another guy that got the world creating a record label. And, uh, we got the record on the radio, Redler played it, Mr. Magic played it, and Jive Records heard the record, and they called and asked what I'd be interested in coming on to have a meeting with Jive. I got on to have a meeting with Jive, uh, a woman by the name of Ann Carly. I didn't like a lot of stuff they were saying, but I genuinely liked her vibration. She seemed like she had a great, uh, energy about her for hip hop, and she really, really wanted hip hop. To be, I just felt that she wanted to probably be bigger than it was, and I felt that they were going to take it seriously. Continue uh, doing video and doing promotions and marketing, which is something I never had marketing and promotion. And, you know, they gave me $10,000 and signed a deal. And I've never seen, as minuscule as that is, but still at the time, I've never seen anybody want that kind of money as far as hip hop. And I literally was conditioned by being on the George Sugar Hill that you don't make money from records, you do it from the shows. And they gave me $10,000 at advance, sent me to 
London to record the album, and that was November of 1986. And, uh, and you know, go see the doctor and trade the entree into getting that deal. But and then when together, I went over and recorded the album. I watched Mike Tyson knock out Trevor Burdick in London while I was recording the album, and uh, came back, and the rest of the history from there. Yeah, wow, man, that's a lot of history you just covered, Mo. I got a few questions. Um, let me see here. Um, what inspired Go See the Doctor? Was that a uh, autobiographical? No, I, I, I panicked. I had a panic moment. Uh, it's semi-autobiographical. A friend of mine, well, I had a, by the way, I'm in college at the time, which is another part of the undoing of the treacherous to uh, while we couldn't be doing shows or whatever, I'm not happy with the amount of money we're not making, or the amount of money we are getting, or whatever you want to look at it. So I'm going to college because my thought process is to get a college degree because I have to think bigger and further than just directed, especially when I enjoy and, and sugar hair. I can't look at this as a career. I'm looking at, okay, let me go to college. I'm never going to stop the career, but I'm going to college to do what I have to do. Uh, and while I was at college, the guys are not able to do as many shows as they would do. And I'm like, you know, in the big scale of things, this is kind of peanut. So college water being the ultimate experience of my young adolescence, well, post adolescence, I guess as young as I was, you know, college 18, 22, 24 for me. Um, but yeah, so, uh, at the end of the day, I'm literally loving being in college. and. That was another part of the undoing of the treasure shoot thing. So when Jive Records comes and I go overseas and cut the record and come back, I'm still in college at the time. What was uh, young Teddy Riley like? What was your impression of him and what did he bring to the game? Uh, I thought his musical ear was incredible. I thought uh, he loved the keyboard and he was also a picky kind of guy. You know, so he knew, uh, you know, the, Whatever the keyboards were called, you know, something called the Fairlight at one point, and he could put, you know, it's the beginning of sampling. So he was in the know of what the new technology was going to be, which is something that I had no idea. I had no taste for it, quite frankly. But the fact that he did, and, you know, we would laugh in the studio, and, you know, he knew the technical terms that I didn't know. So I was like, put it in MIDI and put reverb on it. <laughs> so we would laugh at that or whatever. I had a very limited vocabulary uh, from a technical state, uh, even with the SSL boards or whatever. And he would like literally get off on knowing that kind of stuff. Like, oh, you got to get the SSL board. And it's 32 channels and this many, this many single channels, you can do this or whatever. And if you add this to it, you can get this many channels, you can add this many sounds or whatever. And I thought it was overkill, but he absolutely knew what the hell he was doing at the time. Um, what he also had that was incredible was a level of patience. Uh, I would see him literally take hours to get a drum sound. He wanted a drum sound that he was looking for, and he would take his time to get that sound. I never understood how he did it. I didn't know how to differentiate it. I didn't know what effects you put on it or took off of it. How, you know, reverb and put bottom on a, on a snare, maybe, you know, sound fatter, so to speak, whatever. What to do with the clap to lift it out to make the clap and the snare work together. He was absolutely up to it, that kind of stuff. So uh, I trusted him a thousand percent in terms of what he was. How how did your skills progress 
in your opinion, from, you know, the 79 time frame to where we are now with with your first, you know, big solo hit, Go See the Doctor? Um, Go See the Doctor was uh, one of the hardest records for me to make lyrically because as a lyricist, I pride myself on a lot of the categories I put in my book, years later, Coco, there's a guy on the mic. Uh, I took the vocabulary part very, very seriously, the delivery, how do you say what you're going to say, metaphors, the difference between metaphors and similes, uh, just breaking things down very, very rarely. Uh, but um, when we made those early records, if you go back and look at the early records, not just myself, but everybody, to me, it was just those very first records that just get on and line and get on and line and line and line and line. Curtis Blow, in my opinion, introduced the concept of the hook because it immediately goes for me from writing, rhyming to song making. We had to master how to make a song. And that's what Go to the Doctor was. It was a song structure, 15 bars, hook, 15 bars, hook. A very remedial, simplistic song structure because we would have bridge, chorus, chains, you know, we would have all of the you know, musical progressions or whatever. But at the very least, we had a very, uh, um, I don't want to disrespect and say juvenile, but it was young. A very young, uh, adolescent form of song making. And at the very least, from making the song or, or structuring the song, we had much more success than that. So, go see about the want of becoming my entree into how to make or construct a song. And that record, I mean, all of it was pretty much in more of a, what I would call a down-tempo rap style. The the beats per minute were on the on the slowish side, and um, I think it was eighty-two from around the same day. Yeah, other cuts I just want to mention on that record that stood out to me in particular. I want to give some love to or Little John with its electro funk kind of feel, and mm -hmm. um, and of course, do you know what time it is? Right. So when you went to Jive, was Houdini already there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And did you did you did you know those guys? No, I met them there, but that's another group that I think is very, very unsung in, in the hip hop annals because uh I would say Curtis Blow first, but hands down Houdini, even more than Run DSP, quite frankly, were masters of song making. And song making was going to make or break you in terms of your longevity or your success in your longevity. I thought the fact that they approached me to listen to that escape album, I think it's a masterpiece because there's very little I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm the dopest, I'm the. It was more just, you know, uh, the creeps come out at night. You know, one love, not one love, the creeps come out at night and uh, five minutes of funk. Uh, friends, how many of us have their money? Those are songs that are incredible in terms of how they're constructed and how they're put together. So I also looked at Houdini in terms of song making uh, and song structure to, to put a lot of my stuff together. Which is so funny because uh, when Wild Wild West comes out and people don't know who I am yet because people didn't know, a lot of people thought it was executed for Houdini because we have the same kind of tone in our voice. And it's funny because I, I, when I see them, I, I don't greet them in any other way other than using voice to them. So. Yeah. yeah, actually, it was right around that time I went to see um, uh, Run DMC, Houdini, 
Hello, Cool Joe's on the bill too. We'll talk about him more in a minute. But um, and um, I think one other act. But at the Long Beach Arena in Los Angeles, and there was a major riot that broke out. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So Run DMC never even got to take the stage at that show. We were huddled underneath the bleachers, fearing for our, our well-being, because like the gangs were going at it, and that was a crazy scene. Um, some of the uh, unfortunate moments of, of hip-hop history right there. Um, but in the mid-80s, I mean, hip-hop just started to take off, and it crossed over um, largely because of Run DMC. And um, what was going through your head when you were seeing that evolution and the and the fact that it was hitting as, as hard as it was, and it, I think probably, you know, around that time even MTV was starting to play rap and what were you like did you I mean was it blowing your mind a bit? No, it was just a competitive a loving competitive space because at that point, uh, it's like just being in a fight. You you know we get to appreciate the fight till you stop fighting. But still a fight over while you're in the ring and you're in the round and and you're you're throwing blows or whatever, you're just trying to win. So I'm not knowing how much I'm enjoying Run DMC because I'm too busy competing, but I am keeping my eye on the prize and watching what they're doing and how they're being moved and maneuvered, and uh, which I thought was excellent in terms of what Russell Simmons was doing with them uh, in, in terms of preparing the market for it and marketing the group. Uh, the fact that they uh, did rock box. Well, Sucker Seed was their first big one. Of course, it was like that. That's very similar to Mary Man and the Message playing, whatever. But uh, we were competing with them because they were a younger group. And uh, it's not that much younger, but they like three or four years younger. And uh, they, their position uh, was, you know, the old school played out. And we were considered old school, which is crazy because they're like three years older and two years ahead of them. And they're making it old school, which is. Part of what I have a problem with right to this day in terms of uh, Twitter and what we're doing, it's almost like we're being socially engineered into fast food, instead of health food, or having things that stick with you and you can grow with. It's literally like get as much as you can and get it as popular as you can, as quick as you can, and it doesn't have any real staying power. So it becomes like a high-speed money grab. It's almost like we're taking on the characteristics of technical, uh, you know, the computer space. Like, wow, why, why are you moving so fast? Why won't you just enjoy the record? I, I never forget what I started, when I started to see, and I'm going forward to come backwards, but, uh, you know, you, you put a record out, and then two weeks later, not even two weeks later, you had to put the remix out. Like, what are you doing? Why are we not just enjoying the record? What, what is the urgency from the high speed up here? I couldn't understand it. So why are we doing it? So, while Run DMC was, was uh, becoming what they were becoming, Russell Simmons was, was marketing it and picked, uh, positioning them to be the iconic group that they ultimately became. So by the time they get to 1986 and they do walk this way, they had already done Rock Box and they had already done King of Rock. So they already went their appetite for the mixture of hip hop with rock, which on, a, on another level is preparing you to see hip hop in the same light that you see rock. In terms of being the dominant force, or you know, rock and roll band, or you know, I love rock and roll, Joe Jeff kind of stuff, or whatever, they got you in this space where there was a fanaticism that was associated with rock that 
what we did with R and B. We loved R and B, and don't get me wrong, we loved uh, you know, Infinite Fire and Luther Vandross and even Michael Jackson, which is a whole nother level of phenomenon that you can't even touch. But rock and roll, even Prince was a big rock star who happened to be black. So that's the thing that we were looking at, like how do you create the energy in that space? And Run DMC absolutely tapped into that space way before anybody in hip hop ever did. So like I said, from Walk This Way, I'm sorry, from Rock Box to King of Rock to Walk This Way, which is the, the mother load, when they actually did the song over, they got to cover song, they did the video with Aerosmith, and it broke them in ways that we couldn't have ever imagined and literally became the record uh, of the album of 1986. I do you, uh, do you think it's fair to say that Run DMC was the first rap act that successfully became an album act? You know, they put out whole records that held together. Uh, yes, because again, remember, Bobby Robinson and Sylvia Robinson is not looking at it as anything other than a money grab. Because another thing that we overset or overlooked in 1979, from 1979, from Rapping the Light, the Say 1982, even longer. The, the, the conversation in the black community was this isn't going to last. This is just a fad. The pushback we had for not being radio play is it's not any musical and it's not going to last. It's a fad. But this will be over. I remember, I forgot the guy's name. It's the guy that made this go duck. Uh, Rick Dees. Rick Dees. Rick Dees. He was also a DJ. And he he predicted the death of hip hop at least two times that I'm sure of, and he was dead wrong. Well, this is the end of hip hop, and you know, or rap, as they call it at the time. Um, because the rap music is just thought it was a fad, so nobody actually took it seriously. So, like I said, while competing with Run DMC, what we're not paying attention to on another level is they're absolutely breaking doors down in the space where it has to be legitimized and taken seriously as an art form. It's not just a hood thing. It's not just an independent label thing. Although the independent labels are the gateway in, because only independent labels have the uh, need or desire to make those kind of records because the major labels are still controlled by the older generation. And the older generation really, really had no, no love for hip hop, so to speak. So we had to make noise the way we made noise, and then we had to make noise monetarily in order for it to actually break through on the level of people taking seriously because in America, once it makes money and it makes money consistently, it's something that, you know, it becomes like a stock. It became a hot stock that everybody wanted to get in on that for a minute. Yeah, my, my girlfriend throughout the 80s was totally anti-rap and always dissing it and saying it was just a fad, even as I was listening to, to all of it. Thank you.